Connecting Minds is a space dedicated to honoring the amazing authors, researchers, clinicians, artists, and entrepreneurs who are contributing to our collective evolution or simply making the world a better place. These thought-provoking conversations are intended to expand our horizons, so come with an open mind and let us grow together. Here is your host, Christian Yordanov. Hello and welcome to the Connecting Minds podcast. My name is Christian Yordanov, your host. Thank you so much for joining me today on our 15th episode of the podcast with Dr. Amy Apigian. Now, I think the stuff we talk about on this particular episode is pretty pertinent for the times we live in, you know, with all this corona-related stress and overwhelm and and the related economic um, declines and 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 side effects causing you know a lot of people to to just be in a state of constant stress and fear. So let me read you Dr. Amy's bio. Dr. Amy is a board-certified preventative medicine physician who specializes in trauma, attachment, and addiction medicine and optimizing our nervous system to feel our best and do our best. After throwing herself into finding answers on how to help her foster adopted son as he struggled with severe emotional and behavioral issues, she started to see how much of trauma is biology, not psychology. After six exhausting years, the pieces came together for her son, and as he successfully shifted into feeling loved and understood, she then developed chronic fatigue and autoimmune issues and discovered her own trauma patterns at the root of it. By what she calls biohacking trauma, attachment, and the nervous system, she has found it is possible to rewire the insecure attachment, trauma patterns, and accumulated stress that, it's, that is stored in our bodies. In addition to running her medical concierge focus on biohacking the nervous system, she is the founder and director of Family Challenge Camps, a weekend intensive for families, and is the founder and CEO of Trauma Healing Accelerated, an LLC dedicated to providing education and courses for those wanting to help themselves and or their children. She has written a roadmap to accelerating the rewiring of trauma patterns, runs the Intentional Parenting for Attachment 3-month program, and has created self-guided online courses, including the Shift to Calm Aliveness course to get people started with the basics of somatic experiencing, a powerful body-based therapy. She loves seeing the change happen that can happen so quickly by working directly with the body and optimizing one's biology for connection and aliveness. So there's so much that we covered in this episode that I will probably have to re-listen to it two or three times more to fully, uh, you know, grasp the concepts that Amy's putting forth, and you know, do, do some some extra research on, because we 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 hear about you know the rest and digest nervous system and the fight or flight nervous system, but what she explains really well is that we also have the freeze response, and you know, this is very common and very misunderstood, and it 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 has to do with when we get overwhelmed, so the stress, call, you know, the, causing the fight or flight response becomes too much or is, 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 is there for too long. And then we can enter this freeze response. So a lot of her work is around helping folks, you know, understand these patterns better and consciously reprogram, repattern their nervous system 
to to basically just live with a higher quality of life. So I really love I love what she's doing. And I'm so glad that I can share her work with you. Highly encourage you to check out the further resources linked in the episode description, the show notes on the website. Uh, the video is also going to be on YouTube. So without further ado, it's a great honor to present to you our guest today, Dr. Amy Apigian. Today on the Connecting Minds podcast, we have Dr. Amy Apigian. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Christian. I'm excited about this. Awesome, awesome. So um, today, the broad topic of the conversation will be trauma, attachment, and um, potentially addiction, That depending on where we take it. So with that in mind, can you give folks uh, a little bit about your background, what you do, how you got into it, and um, Basically, the type of, we know you're a medical doctor, the type of medicine you practice currently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So my story started out as what I think would be considered as a very normal path for a physician where, you know, I was very heavy in the sciences. I even got a master's in biochemistry. And it was during medical school that I felt the calling to adopt or not adopt, but start foster parenting. And they placed, uh, you know, my, ultimately what became my son, Miguel with me. And he came into my life at age four and my goodness, like I still remember that first moment when I met him and it was just this excitement, this hope for the relationship that we would have and the connection and how I, I, I just knew that I'd be able to reach his heart and heal so many of the wounds and the painful experiences that he had had already in his early, you know, young four years of life. So I was so excited for this and I did everything wrong, Christian. (laughs) I did everything wrong because I was so excited and I, and I knew I was wrong, but at the time I knew that just my love would be enough to undo all of that damage. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't. And it was six very long years trying to figure out the pieces for what he needed to actually do well and be happy. And not only be happy, but be able to open his heart to me, to trust me, and to feel safe in his loving me and me loving him. Stuff that I like never would have even thought about going through medical school and studying, you know, proteins and enzymes and medications and rote memorizing all of these things. And then it, and then it, yeah, I was handed this personal experience, which ultimately drastically changed my life and my career uh, from this four-year-old boy who showed up in my life and, and taught me like, you can know all that stuff, (laughs) but, but it really comes down to the relationship the attachment and this stuff gets wired into our nervous system and we continue to act out what our nervous system has been patterned to do for survival and we don't even realize it. So Mm. part of my story is that after uh, all the pieces came together for him, my own health took a crash. And so it was, it was almost like this, this breath of like, whew, like we made it, we made it what, you know, six long years and we made it, we're here. And then my own health crashed. And I realized it was just that opportunity for my body to give into the stress 
that I had been living under for so many years and come to find out, I realized, wait a second, like I've got these same type of patterns that he does. I don't always feel safe and secure in in vulnerability and in intimacy. And I feel like I need to protect myself. And, and it was like, whoa, wait a second. Like I thought that was just my son and his issues from having such a rough early few years. How come I have these tendencies? How come I have these, what we would consider like an insecure attachment style an insecure attachment pattern wired into my nervous system that I realized was uh, leading to the root cause of my health issues? which became for me uh, chronic fatigue from the stress. And it even resulted in some autoimmune issues, some gut issues. And I had always been very active and I started to have more accidents. So I've you know broken my, my collarbone here on my right side four times now because of different sports injuries. And the more stuff started to happen, the more I realized, wait a second, like this is my nervous system and these patterns of not being fully present. Uh, and that's part of, you know, what I, I call the freeze response of, of not being fully present in our life and needing to figure out how to rewire that. So that's what I've been spending the last, oh my goodness, like six years now figuring out how to rewire this as an adult now. Okay. So let's unpack that. So can you tell us, I mean, whatever you would like to share, what kind of, um, issues, did Miguel have and um, basically what what did you what did you feel you did wrong and what did you kind of learn is the right way to to basically help a, a, a small child um, begin to to mm -hmm. love to trust to to not not live in fear this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And such a great question and so important for our times today where we have children who. Uh, are living in fear, especially with all the changes lately this year with the pandemic. There's so much fear and insecurity. And we as the adults and their parents need to know, like, how do we actually get them through this and get them through this in a way that they feel safe, that they feel secure, that they feel happy, that they're going to be successful and not let this, you know, be, you know, one thing that leads them to be one more statistic for a mental health condition, right? Yeah. And and so this is such an important question for right now. And what we know of the attachment and neuroscience and all of this stuff that comes together is that young children need to feel like their parent is bigger and stronger than they are. And perfectly safe. And that's a, that's, that's a unique combination. And I think that it seems that generally we have forgotten this piece of my parent needs to be stronger than me. We focus more on the love and the connection and that's what I did wrong. So knowing that my love was going to undo all of his damage I immediately got on the floor and I started playing with him and whatever he wanted, I just went along with. And within, within a few minutes, I could see that he had lost any respect for me, any sense of that I'm the one who's, who's the leader. And in a child's mind, if the parent is not the leader, that means that they have to be the leader and they feel 
very incompetent, right? Like they know that they don't know about life enough yet to be the leader. And so when they, when they feel the lack of that leadership, it puts them into a place of fear, realizing, feeling that they have to then fill that role. So we have this strength and leadership quality that has to be there, has to be there. And then along with that, it also has to come with a sense of safety of, yes, they are a strong leader and they have my best interest in mind. And when those two are combined, it is the recipe for ultimate trust, secure attachment and connection. Okay. So what are some ways a parent might, uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, relate to the child un- unintentionally that they're not in a leadership position, that they don't got it kind of way? <laughs> sure. This can come across in many different ways. And I'd like to start with how the parent feels inside of themselves. Because whatever their insecurities are, if they don't feel like they are competent, if they feel a lack of confidence in themselves and their ability to lead and make good decisions for their family, that's going to come across, Christian, in their body language. It's going to come across in their tone of voice. It's going to come across in their facial expressions, even down to their eyes and the pupil size. And these are all ways of communicating to others that is much louder than any words that we can ever say. We don't realize how much body language we read off of people. And so they can be saying one thing, but if their body language is saying something else, and by body language, I include all of that, right? Which is even their tone of voice, their their rhythm of their voice, all of that are these subconscious, unconscious ways that we uh, reveal our inner nervous system and where it's at. So we have three different nervous system states. Whatever state it is in, it's going to come out in everything that we do. So that's really where the work needs to start for a parent is is understanding what patterns do I have that I can work on, not to say that a parent needs to be perfect, absolutely not. But that's part of the picture, Christian, right, is is being able to be secure in our imperfection rather than feeling uh, so insecure if we don't have it all figured out and not reaching out for the support in a healthy way. And so getting overwhelmed, and then we start snapping at our family, snapping at our kids because we feel overwhelmed with everything else. And they are, you know, one more responsibility or they, you know, are, are a burden because there's so many other burdens in our life. So it really does start with a parent becoming aware of which state their nervous system tends to hang out in, and there's the three different states, which state do they tend to hang out in most? Because whatever that is, that's going to come across. And there's just the one state, which is called, there's a couple of different words for it, but it's the social engagement system, parasympathetic system. 
when we are in that state of our nervous system, we are fully present. We are able to engage. We're able to connect. We are aware of ourselves. We are aware of other people. And so we are fully alive, fully alive. And that's the state in which we are naturally going to step into the leadership roles wherever we are in our life, whether it's in our career, whether it's in you know, in our family with our parenting, we will naturally step into those roles when we are in that state. So the real work is just making sure that we know our body well enough to know when we are in that state, when we are not in that state, and then how to shift our state back to where we will naturally, it won't have to be something that we think about. It will just be a natural uh, assuming of the, of the roles, of the responsibilities of that leadership and do it with confidence and, and competence. Mm. Okay. So what are the other two states? Yes. So there are two survival states. So I just talked about the state that is the non-survival state, and that is where we thrive. We are going to be our healthiest. We are going to be our most creative. We are going to be happy. We're going to be experiencing joy and connection. And, and so that is where we want to be. And that is where healthy nervous systems are. And then there are two survival states and we can easily recognize these. <laughs> One is the, uh, the, the scientific names for it are the sympathetic state. The other names for it that people would, might recognize more are called the fight and flight. And I like to tell people, think of that hamster on the wheel, the, the, the anxious, the hypervigilant, the stressed, the hamster on the wheel, you feel it in your head, <laughs> your thoughts are racing. That is the sympathetic fight or flight survival response. And we go into that state whenever we sense a danger or a threat. And this is a natural biological thing. There is, there is nothing that we can do to change that. This is what our body does. And it will override our logic in order to try to help us survive. So this is where that blood flow goes down to the logical parts of our brain. And it goes into what we call the limbic system, which is all about memory and association. And have I ever experienced something like this before? Have I seen this type of danger or threat before? How did it work out for me? So what do you think I should do now? And that's where we get the racing thoughts because the it, we have gone into survival mode and we haven't figured out what all I should do to try to survive. <laughs> and so people will recognize this, right? And be like, well... I understand that, but I, I feel like I'm always in that state, which is quite possible because our body does not differentiate between an actual physical threat, like someone walking down the street and they look threatening or an emotional threat or a psychological threat where we feel like we might be unlovable, where we feel like someone might be criticizing us. And if they criticize us, then that means that we are incompetent, that we might be rejected, we might be abandoned. So, so there's so many different types of threats that we can experience. And a lot of that goes back to our very, you know, early childhood and those relationship dynamics that influence what we experience as a threat 
now, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, Christian, our body sees all of that as threat and it will go into the sympathetic survival response every single time in order to try to help us survive. So let's talk about the second survival state. This is one that is the most misunderstood Christian, (laughs) and it drives me nuts because it's so common, so common. And the more I've come to study the freeze response, the more I've come to see it in many people. I see it all around. I see it in my patients, but I see it in CEOs and executives of multi-million dollar businesses. The freeze response is the second survival response that we go into when something becomes overwhelming. So there is stress. And when we are stressed, we are in the sympathetic state that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. But when we get overwhelmed, when we cross that line and it's like, whoa, okay, this is too much. Or this has been going on for too long. I can't do this anymore. There's that line that our body, our biology says, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't mount a, a, a survival response anymore. And I'm going to shut down. And it actually is a very protective mechanism because we go into this state where we, we don't care anymore. We've been so overwhelmed, so worn down that we stop caring anymore. And this is where people will start to check out, zone out, numb out. And so for some people, yeah, let me just say that for some people that does look like an addiction, not just to a substance, but maybe a behavioral addiction, maybe an eating disorder. Any of those types of things are always, the root cause is always this type of freeze response that is in their nervous system. And in order to to numb out and bring the level of intensity of the overwhelm and the shame down, they engage in those substances or behaviors that help them feel better, bring the intensity down. But for other people, it's coming home and sitting in front of the TV zoning out, right? They're just mentally kind of checking out. People will even do this in meetings. Uh, I, I notice this at work quite a bit where, you know, people will, will sit down and it's almost like immediately if they don't have something that they're doing right there, their mind will kind of drift off and they'll be thinking about something else entirely. They might, they may not even hear what's going on around them. They're, they're that disconnected because their mind tends to drift off, check out, zone out in order to uh, help the overwhelm, the baseline overwhelm feeling. Mm. So this is this is where the so much of the danger lies though in terms of the long-term consequences because anytime, anytime Christian, (laughs) anytime we're talking about overwhelm and having crossed that line from stress to feeling overwhelmed, that is a trauma. That is the definition, the biology definition of trauma. We have, you know, psychological definitions and all that kind of stuff, but 
what's actually happening in the biology is this is this is a trauma to one's biology. And by trauma, what I simply mean is that it has lasting effects on our biology. Things that don't go away after that event or situation has passed. This gets imprinted, uh, stuck. This gets, this is where we talk, you know, about these books that we were just talking about before we started the recording, right? Where when the body says no, or the body bears the burden, all of these books talking about the long-term effects, this is what it comes from, is when we have crossed from a stress to an overwhelm, because that is what leaves lasting effects on our health. And most of us (laughs) and more and more people in society have these patterns in their nervous system where they actually go back and forth between stress and overwhelm, stress and overwhelm. And (laughs) they're never really in that alive and creative and joy place because that's not how their nervous system has been wired. And it's been so long now that they've had this pattern of stress and overwhelm. I'm done. I'm collapsing. And, and, you know, like I, I, I've got low energy now and I, everything just feels like it's like, it's, uh, yeah, uh, kind of numbed out. I just don't care anymore. I'm just going to get through my day, but there's no joy. And, and then we come out of that and we go right back into the stress and then we get so stressed that it becomes overwhelming and we go back and forth between these two. And, so much so that they've become like highways. And in order to get our brain and our nervous system to do anything different takes intentional, intentional work that, uh, yeah, we can talk about that at some point, but, but that's the intentional work of working directly with your nervous system, where these patterns are at, where this overwhelm has been stored and then optimizing the nervous system, the neuroplasticity, its ability to rewire itself so that we can be very intentional and, and get, get the car off of the paved highways that we have and onto a new path and make that eventually our new highway. So I've been talking a lot. (laughs) I know this has been a lot (laughs) and especially on a tough topic, right? Like overwhelm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's sad because I I know so many people that are in such a state and, um, you know, my heart goes out to them. And unfortunately, unless, like you said, unless we do something conscious about it to get Mm -hmm. ourselves on a new path, just remain stuck potentially for life. And it's a a bit of a travesty because we have, we can access much better ways of being. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that's great that you you can help people to do that so i think be, be, i think before we get into some strategies how to you know rewire ourselves can we kind of because this will go this episode will go on on both of my podcasts so one is specifically mm-hmm. for children's health the other mm-hmm. one is much more broad but for the the parents in our audience can you tell mm-hmm. us can you bring us back to how how these patterns get imprinted in the nervous system? What, what yeah. can be? What, how how does it happen? What can be done to prevent it? And mm-hmm. what can be done after the fact when someone yeah. is small still, and then right. when we are kind of older and adults? I guess the, it's a big question, but I feel like you can definitely explore all those topics. <laughs> sure. 
let's jump into the first one of if you have a child or if you're planning to have a child, what do we do in order to make sure that they are developing, their nervous system is developing for a secure, that secure state and, and not be one more person that is in the insecure states, the survival states and going back and forth between the stress and the overwhelm. So when we, when we look at early childhood, we realize from the studies, John Bowlby was the first one who really started looking at attachment work. And then his, his, uh, student graduate student, Mary Ainsworth and the work that she did phenomenal work. And what we learned from those was that a person's attachment style or these patterns of relationship and whether we feel safe and secure in the world or not is in place by 12 months of age, one year of life. And it's interesting because as we look at that period of life, we realize that for most of that, there's not a lot of verbal communication right? So parents will say, you know, well, I tell my kids all the time that I love them. Well, that's great, but there's so much that gets communicated that's not verbal, right? And we talked a little bit about this, of how that nonverbal communication speaks so much louder than verbal communication. So some of the things where I see, I see great parents that are unintentionally um, setting their children up to have an insecure pattern are parents who are uh, doing a lot, right? They're doing a lot in life. They have a lot of other responsibilities. And so they're distracted. They're busy. And and so their, their home responsibilities are just that. Like it's just one more thing on the to-do list to check off. And that results in them being so caught up in the responsibilities and the busyness that they're not getting enough time to just be with their newborn, to just be with their young child. And that is where the gold is at, because the more time that a parent can do that, just just be there and not be distracted, not be trying to also, you know, take a call while they're doing this or, you know, trying to do something else while trying to get their children to tie their shoelaces, whatever it is, right? There's so many different examples, but I mean, even down to breastfeeding, right? Um, How are we doing that? Are we using that time in order to just be and have that be a time of connection how powerful that is. That is one of the the most powerful times to really connect on a physiological, on a biological level with an infant than other times where we don't have that, um, that activation of their mouth and the food and the warmth in their belly and all of these positive experiences that they have with eating. We need that to be connected with the relationship piece of I'm here, I'm present, I see you. 
I hear you. And in our modern world, we have so much going on that moms are taking calls. You know, they're on a phone call while they're breastfeeding. They're trying to, they're trying to do stuff. They're trying to keep up with all of their work. And so the child starts to feel like they are just one more burden. They are just one more responsibility. And here is what happens, Christian. <clears throat> An infant, again, this is all nonverbal communication, right? <laughs> so you talk to a parent, they would be horrified if they knew that that was the message that their child was internalizing. Be horrified about that. And so what happens is that a, an infant, they have these two survival states in place uh, very early on. The first one that they have is the overwhelm state and the freeze response like we talked about. The second one, the, the sympathetic state is one that they develop more over time. And then after all of that, they develop the relationship one and the connection one. And that's all based on their relationship with their primary caregiver, which really is their biological mom. And so as they're going and having these experiences, if they start to feel like my mom is overwhelmed, an infant in order to survive will start to shut down their own needs in order to not be a burden to their mother because they understand instinctually, they feel it in their body that if if that is their sole source of food and clothes and warmth and physical needs, then they better shut down any emotional needs, any connection needs, any relationship needs, because they don't want to be a burden that overwhelms her that would make her not even be able to provide for their physical needs. And so as they engage with her, right, and maybe they're having a moment of play or they're, you know, they just, they just discovered the carpet for the first time, right? <laughs> these, these very simple moments as they start to explore their world and, and are more aware, you will notice that they always look to mom when they have one of these moments, right? I just discovered that I have a toe. Oh my goodness, right? Or I just discovered, you know, this thing on my face. You know, obviously they don't know that it's called a nose yet, but they're they're in discovery mode and they will always look to mom at those moments to to share that moment of discovery with her. And if she is so busy and distracted that she's not catching those looks, those glances, then the message that is given to the child is, oh my goodness, like she's overwhelmed. She's busy. I better shut down that relationship part that my desire to connect with her at these moments of joy and happiness. And so they start to go into their own overwhelm pattern in order to make sure that they are not just one more burden on busy, distracted parents. Is this is this making sense? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my my girlfriend actually showed me a video today where she was telling me about uh, uh, Bobby's work, and yes. she showed me a video where the mom they made her you know play with the kid, and whenever mm -hmm. the kid points, she's laughing and smiling. Yes. And then she did the same thing with a like completely flat face, yes, emotionless, and the kid is 
the baby is pointing and it after a few minutes it just starts crying because exactly the parent is completely yes. dis- she, she's there but she's disengaged completely so exactly she's she's there but she's not there yeah, yeah yes yeah. and we can provide all of the physical needs for babies right this was also part of bulby's work is we can provide all the physical needs but if they don't get touch if they don't get the emotional connection that is enough to send them into developing these patterns of being in the survival states all the time. Children, you know, their nervous system is really growing fast, developing all throughout the ages of, you know, even up to three, four, and five. And then of course the brain continues to mature until our early twenties. But since our nervous system is developing in these early ages, whatever these experiences are of life get imprinted at that time. So that becomes our blueprint. That becomes our foundation, our perspective from which we experience all the rest of life into adulthood. Of course, unless we become aware of it and rewire that. But this is the importance. Like This is, this is how important this foundational early infancy is for our nervous system and the rest of our life. And it's these types of nervous systems, right? That have these patterns of, you can call it attachment, attachment disruption, attachment wounds. I call it attachment pain, but ultimately it's attachment trauma because there's that trauma in the relationship. It's that break in the connection in the relationship that they need and it leaves lasting effects. So we and call that trauma. Age, until what age can that trauma be imprinted into a child or a person? Mm-hmm. And that's a really good question. And I'm not sure that we have an exact answer, Christian. But what we do know is that children who have uh, experiences even out as far as three three years of life around then seems to be where that change happens, where if they had everything that they needed for a secure attachment up until three years of life. And then something happened. Maybe one of their parents died or there was a big natural disaster completely, you know, uprooted their whole life. They're able to manage that much better and not lose that trust, that connection, that perspective, that the adults are here to help me. I can rely on them. I can go to them for my needs rather than it's not safe to go to them for my needs. I better just shut it down and and in order to try to help survive. So around three age, three years of age seems to be that mark where before then it's going to leave lasting effects on their ability to trust and be in healthy relationship and have a perspective that the world is generally safe. And after three years of life, if they've had all of that great up until then, then they're able to maintain that for the most part. Yeah. So I think the bottom line, we can unequivocally say that it's not just extreme things like a parent uh, passing away or sexual abuse or, or kind of this um, violence it's not just these things that can traumatize us and f- probably most of us to to an extent carry something in our nervous system yes that is what i have found is that most people to some degree they're on the spectrum right and some people have more than others 
but most, most everyone has these types of patterns, attachment, trauma patterns from early childhood, just because some of that is life, right? And then what Mary Ainsworth did in her studies, which we should mention because we're, we're on this topic is that whatever the parents, okay. So she did the initial study where she looked at uh, a parent and their 12 month old. And that's where she figured out, like, we have these patterns by 12 months of life. And then when those babies grew up and had their own children, she brought them back. And what she found Christian was that their, the, the style that they had had, the patterns in their nervous system that they had had in infancy is the same pattern that, that their children now had, because this is how it gets passed on, right? Like it, it becomes, it becomes how we express ourselves. It becomes how we engage. It becomes how much eye contact we feel safe having with people. It like, it's so much unconscious, nonverbal things that we just think, is our personality. We don't even, we don't even think, we don't even realize most of what we're doing with our body, how we carry ourselves, the different, you know, tension patterns in our muscles, all of this, all of this is our nervous system. And it's what we unconsciously pass on to our children then, because we share our nervous system with our children. You know, last week I finished uh, Mark Wallin's book. Um, it didn't start with you. Yeah, and this is exactly what he talks about. It, mm-hmm. and the the more I reflect, the more I I realize how much I've internalized, not just from my mother, father, sister, but my grandparents. Exactly, and yeah, uh, yeah. even some of yeah. my cousins. Were, yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really well, okay, amazing. let's. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it's 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 inc- inc- like the saying that a child is a sponge. Is a complete right. understatement. It's huge yeah. understatement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and this okay, idea so, that children are resilient and they'll be okay, yeah. you know, they'll get through things, and I'm like, no, y- yeah. it comes at a cost. Yeah. Right. And uh, what is that call, cost? If you call people addicted to Netflix, their phones, uh, yes. resilient, or or alcohol, or drugs, or coffee, that's yeah. Are we resilient or are we just, or, or have we normalized how sick our society has become? That's exactly what yeah. has happened, Christian. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's, let's talk solutions. Let's talk, how do we, how do we repattern um, our nervous system so we can live our best selves, yeah. Amy? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I will start with what not to do, what does not work. And because we're talking about the survival systems and how these have been imprinted into our nervous system, anything that involves just talking about it is not going to work, is not going to work. We may call a friend, we may even go into therapy and talk about something and feel better in the moment, but it's not going to stick, right? because it didn't change the patterns in our nervous system. And so if we want lasting change, if we want, if we're tired of our pattern, our lifelong pattern, we've got to go deeper than that. And we've actually got to work directly with these survival patterns in our nervous system. We've got to explore our shutdown, our overwhelm. We got to, you know, start 
looking at that, not in a way that's going to be too much too fast, because that'll put us right back into the overwhelm, but, but in a way where we start to uh, be aware of what exactly are my patterns, right? Most people don't even realize what their patterns are. And so we just start exploring that and then working directly with the body. So most of the body-based therapies are always going to work better than any type of the talk therapies or cognitive-based therapies in terms of long-term change, long-term success, long-term change. And so this is where I started realizing this. And as a physician, I'm going to these trainings and becoming trained in the body-based trauma therapies because I saw how effective they were at actually rewiring and resolving some of these traumatic events, situations, and patterns in our nervous system. And, and so, what are by some that, examples of, of those? Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt. What are some examples of these body-based mm-hmm. therapies? Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking about Dr. Peter Levine. So he's been one who founded what's called somatic experiencing. So he's been a great resource, a great resource for building the presence of body-based trauma therapies. And then there's neuroaffective touch. And so that is that was founded by Dr. Aileen Lapierre. And so there's these different, these different schools, these different, uh, slightly different approaches that all involve working directly with what shows up in our body and the nervous system. And so when we talk about the nervous system, we talk about our senses, we talk about, you know, uh, even like our, our movements, whether we get uh, sweats or chills or goosebumps, how fast our heart is beating, how fast we're breathing. And so these are the things that we actually track and measure and work with in the body-based trauma therapies. And it's, it's good to know, I think that we don't need to have a story attached to it. We don't need to have a specific memory in order to be able to do some of these therapies because that's the beauty of it. It's it, We're looking directly at the pattern in the nervous system. We don't need to know what happened that put that pattern there. For most of our stuff, it may be we it, pre-verbal, right? Like we don't have memory of that, but it's, do I have these patterns, right? And then, okay, let's, let's work on them. Let's rewire them. And when we rewire them, we can get to a place of what I call, you know, the earned secure attachment where yes, now you have choice and now you can feel when your body goes into stress. You can feel when your body is approaching that line of overwhelm. And now what's different is that you have a choice and you can choose to respond differently. You can choose to use the tools that you've gained to shift your nervous system back to that place of social engagement, parasympathetic, alive, curious, creative, connected. Whereas before you didn't have a choice, your body was taking you there because that's all it Mm. knew how to do. So it does, it's not like it completely erases those patterns. It just gives you choice now of how do you want to handle this situation? Do you want to use your tools that you have? Do you not want to use the tools that you have? But you have that choice now, which is huge, right? It's, it's huge um, yeah. to be able to have the power to 
change your way of responding or reacting to life, to relationships, to, you know, situations, to all kinds of situations, right? Like you have this whole new level of awareness of your nervous system and what state you're in and why you're in that state and how to get back to the state where you are truly your best self. So when it comes to, you know, solutions and what to do, the body-based therapies are much more effective at long-term change than any talk or cognitive-based therapies. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, in fact, I was just going to ask, what this somatic experiencing trauma therapy, can this be done online, by the way? That's a great question. And this year has brought up a lot of <laughs> a lot of those questions, right? And the short answer is yes. So even I have been still meeting with some clients and some patients and we've transitioned to online. And yes, like I've still been able to work with them in some situations that looks a little different, right? Rather than me placing my hand on a certain spot in their body where their nervous system is acting up, I'm having them do that or I'm having them get you know, a weighted pillow or a weighted blanket and using that for a sense of pressure and support. So yes, there's been, there's been a lot that we have been still able to do online and, and it's a great place for people to gently start. And I would say like, no matter where you are, right. If you, if you see that you have had trauma or if you don't relate to having had trauma, but just can relate to stress and some overwhelm, that would be a great place for people to start. Yeah, and what does the what does it actually look like? Like, a, let's say a, a, a forty five or sixty minute therapy session with this somatic experiencing therapy. What does that actually look like? So you already kind of alluded to placing of hands, feeling feeling parts of the body. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Well, yes, yes, and no, <laughs> because for every person, it's so different based on how they're showing up that day. Right. So, uh, and there's many different techniques, there's many different tools. And so each session may look completely different. Some, sometimes there is no direct, uh, touch involved, obviously with the approach with Dr. Aileen Lapierre with the neuroeffective touch. Yes. Like that's, that's the idea, right? Is that, uh, we're actually using touch to rewire some of these patterns, and even identify them, identify and, and rewire. Um, so when a person is first starting out, one thing that, that their provider, their practitioner might be asking to start the session is Christian, uh, I want you to just kind of check in with your body right now and let me know where you feel any area of, um, tension, discomfort or anything unpleasant. And I mean, do you have any place right now in your body where you feel anything yeah, unpleasant? Lower back. Your lower tight. back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ah, is tight. Okay. And on a scale of one to 10, where would you rate the intensity of that tightness in your back? Probably 3.5. A 3.5. Okay. And is this something that you feel often? Is this something that is unusual? What would it's, uh, yeah it's it's pretty often when I sit in the chair for it's, it's several a familiar hours feeling. in a day. Mm -hmm. It's a familiar feeling. Okay, so one thing that I will just have you do right now then is uh, just lift up your arms a bit and actually 
push away. Really slow. Yeah, just really slow. Bring your hands back and just like really, really slow, Christian. Just as if you're like pushing a heavy rock away. Really heavy rock. Yep, there you go. Nice. Feel your muscles engaged in your arms as you're pushing this heavy rock away. Good. And all the way out. Nice. Yep. What are you noticing? Um, you're smiling a little bit. What are you noticing? It, it It's actually, it feels better. It does, it doesn't it? Tense. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of strange. <laughs> That is that is the most frequent thing that I hear people say is this is this is weird. And I'm like, yes, in somatic experiencing, we are going to do a lot of weird things, and you're just gonna get used to that. <laughs> okay. So let me just explain briefly what just happened, Christian K. And your new number right now for your back is what? I think now I'm probably down to like a two. Yeah, a two. So three point five to two. And all you did was move your arms. Hmm. Okay, so what what just happened is that in our back, this is a common area for us to carry a sense of stress and overwhelm. So chronic back pain has a strong association with feeling a lack of support. And that actually goes back to early infancy because when we think about a parent holding their baby, their hands are cupping the head and their arms are all up against the baby's back. That is where we first get our sense of support in life. They've got me. And I feel so safe in their arms. I'm not even afraid of falling. <laughs> and we're laughing. We're engaging. I'm sticking my tongue out and they're sticking their tongue out at me, right? Like there is no fear because they feel fully supported with all of that contact and the strength, right? We talked, we started our conversation about parents being in a place of strength. That's where this first comes from. And so when we don't have adequate feeling of support, then it develops into these types of patterns of back pain. And so when we talk about, hey, what can I do to help rewire this? Since we're talking about overwhelm, this is where I often have people just start, just a basic technique that you can use anywhere, anytime, right, is push it away, right? Because if something is overwhelming, if life is overwhelming, you got to make some space to breathe and you just push things away. And even though we're not actually pushing it? anything away, say that again. Do you visualize whatever you're pushing away or just no, push away? No, you don't, you don't need to, right? Did you visualize something that you were pushing away? No. 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 And it worked, right? Like oh. this is because we're working directly with the nervous system. The nervous system, you know, controls our muscles, controls the tension in our muscles, controls the movement. And so when we are just actively engaging our muscles, we're engaging our nervous system and we're doing the motion of give me space. This is too much. Give me you space. Blew my mind. You just blew my mind. I swear. So that is, yeah, there, there's a little bit of somatic experiencing for you, Christian. By the way, do you, have to be an MD? 
do you have to be an MD? No, to, no, to no, no, I, oh, no, awesome. not at all. I, I am one of the very few MDs. Most of them are some type wow. of therapist. Wow. And okay. some of them come from massage therapy. Some of them come from a licensed marriage and family therapy. Most of them are therapists. I am one of the very few MDs trained in somatic experiencing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I will look yeah. into this. This is, you, uh, honestly, you blew my mind. This just blew my mind because this, I've been suffering from, because I'm on the computer working a lot. This is one of the things that is kind of, it's a bane in, in my life. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. So okay. let's, let's, um, let's actually, I, I, another thing I had a note I had written here, you're also certified. You seem to have a lot of certifications, which I love. Um, but, uh, you, you are certified in art narrative trauma therapy model, instinctual yes. trauma response model. Could you elaborate what that is, please, Amy? Yes. So our body has a very specific response to a threat that happens every single time, right? We talked about that where when somebody perceives a threat, and I and I use that word perceive because it may or may not be actually real, <laughs> right? Based on our lens, based on our insecurities, we may be perceiving threats that aren't really there. So when we perceive a threat, there's this sequence of events that happen in our biology. When we experience a trauma, there is a specific sequence that happens in our biology every single time. It is very predictable because it's our, our nervous system knows only one way to survive. And so it's going to roll out that, you know, that, that survival response by the push of a button. It's like, okay, we gotta, we gotta survive here. Let's push the button for the survival response. And so that response then, because it's so predictable, we can go back and we can re it's kind of like re um, living in a sense, putting ourselves back into that situation. So this is where it would be really helpful for a specific trauma that you do have memory about, you know, like a, a natural disaster, a fire, a car accident, um, something where there's specific memory, this is where this type of therapy is very helpful. Um, it can also be helpful for, for non-memory, but just not as much, right? And so what, what a person does is then they, they draw out each of the biological, uh, responses that happens in, that happened in their, event in their traumatic event. And when we do that, it allows us to now resolve that rather than staying stuck in that hypervigilant, I'm scared, I may not survive this. And that's really what PTSD is, is still being stuck in the middle of that. Our body never, never got to the place where it it realized that it is now safe. It is still stuck in that I'm not safe. I'm not safe. And so this therapy through the art of drawing out, drawing out the specific events that happened in your biology. So at first you felt a startle, 
draw that moment out. You know, what was the startle? What did you feel in your body? What colors were around you? What were you smelling? Like all of these senses, draw it out. Okay. So that was your startle response. And then you would have actively tried to tried to survive. So there's an active process. Did you try to run away? Did you try to look for help? Did you try to, you know, break a window to jump out and whatever it was, right? Like what did you actively try to do? Draw that out. And if you survived, if you came out of that, okay, there's no trauma. It was just a stress, but it's when what we tried to do didn't work that our body decided, hey, I need to just shut down and go into the freeze response like we talked about. And the best thing for me to do is just to not feel the pain. And so our body releases a huge amount of endorphins in order to not feel the, whatever it is, the physical pain, the emotional pain of the situation. And so like we talked about, the freeze response feels like a giving up, a giving in. I don't care anymore. Do whatever you want to me because I don't care anymore. I've had enough. But in reality, it's the ultimate way that our body has to try to survive because it's realizing that whatever I tried to actively do, it's just making things worse or it's not working. And so the best thing for me to do is just to shut down and not feel, not care anymore. And so that's the freeze response. And when we can, usually we don't, as a society, know how to work with that. It's very uncomfortable place to be. And so we get stuck there. We don't allow our body to resolve. And so to come out of that, we start to take care of ourselves. So that's where a person maybe after a car accident would start to, you know, like rub their body and be like, oh, oh, wow. Like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm alive, right? I am alive. I actually survived that and I'm okay. You know, I may have had a broken bone or whatever, but I'm actually, I'm actually alive. I survived that. And they go into this self-care mode and then they go into orienting where they start looking all around them. And it's this time for their nervous system to gather from the environment, the message that they are now safe the threat is over. And so by drawing all of this out and by drawing those last two stages, it allows the nervous system to now complete it and come to a sense of, whew, you're right. I did survive that and I am safe now. And so it resolves that specific trauma. Love it. Now, if let, let's say... For, for a parent that their child has just just experienced the trauma yeah or let's say for someone whose partner or mm-hmm. someone close to them has yes. experienced the trauma is there yeah. anything that we can do in that moment or yes. in the periphery yes. to help them kind of process yes. it so it doesn't get stuck yes 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 i'm so glad you're asking this because this is another moment christian where parents intending to be good, intending to be helpful, actually cause more damage. And let's take the example of a kid who's at the playground and they fall off something high and they're on the ground and they're kind of just stunned, right? Like, whoa, 
I'm stunned. They may be crying. They may, you know, but they're still in that, in that phase of like, I'm, I'm stunned. This can also be true for any kind of accident or a head concussion or whatever. Like there's that moment before they, (laughs) before they start crying, before they start yelling, you know, where it's just like, I'm stunned. It was a shock. So when a person has had any kind of that, and especially a child, the tendency is for us to go over and start asking questions, right? Are you okay? Where do you hurt? What do you need? Let's call an ambulance. Um, and the, and, and it's this, 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 you know, flurry of, of activity and, and trying to engage them because we feel anxious, right? Like we, we've gone into sympathetic (laughs) and what we need to realize is that they're at the point where like their body is still in that shock. And so the best thing that we can do is to wait and let their body come out of the shock by itself. When we rush that, that is when we don't allow the body to complete its natural cycle. And it's almost like it's on a, it's on a timer, right? And so we just need to give it time, even for ourselves. You know, when we experience a, a, a scare, a startle, and we feel that, you know, like, ah, moment of shock and we feel our heart beating fast. The tendency is in our society, in our world, just to keep moving, right? Keep going. Don't, you know, don't stop. Keep going. Um, and that's not what our body needs. Our body needs that time to, like we talked about just with the two last stages, to come back to a sense of, okay, I'm here. I'm okay, right? I'm okay. I'm alive. And then let me start looking around and orienting. Okay, there's my mom. Okay, she looks like she's calm. She's right here with me. I'm so glad she's right here with me. Let me look around and let me, okay, I'm safe. Now let me sit up. Now let me start getting back. And what we try to do is we go over and and we pick them up. We make them sit up right away and we don't give the body that time that it needs to stay in the shock, which is a form of the freeze, stay in the shock and let the body be on its timer to resolve its own overwhelm in that moment. We, the best thing is to not try to talk, to not engage, putting a hand somewhere on them, uh, on their shoulder, on their stomach anywhere really, uh, with just some pressure to let them know that we are here with them, but we're not going to try to overwhelm them by more talk right now. That is so insightful. Thank you for that. Um, I'm so glad I met you before I have kids. There's like, (laughs) there's so many things I can learn from. I'm definitely be reading all of your, um, I started reading some of your articles on your website, but I definitely will be reading all of those and the recommended reading list that you have. And folks mm-hmm. listening, if you are interested, if this has tickled uh, or, or piqued your interest, uh, definitely I will have Amy's, uh, Dr. Amy's website and you can check out the books she recommends and her articles. Um, Amy, can you tell folks where they can find you, find you on the internet, please? Absolutely. So, my home website is dramy.com. So that's D-R. And then I spell my name A-I-M-I-E. So dramy.com is my home site. And from there, they can see all the different projects that we have going on. 
or they can go directly to Trauma Healing Accelerated. And that's where I have all the resources. I have a few online programs that people can use to get started with somatic experiencing. And uh, I guided them through a, a week experiential course on somatic experiencing so that they can get started with that. And that's where they can find all of that, traumahealingaccelerated.com. That is awesome. We'll have the links uh, in on the website and in the episode show notes. And you can you also tell folks a little bit about your Bio-Optimized Summit I, uh, yes. Is it still possible for people to access the recordings? Yes. So I did just finish a bio-optimized summit. So it was a full seven-day summit. I interviewed over 45 health experts. And what I interviewed them on was basically my story between my son and then myself and what were all the pieces needed in order to rewire and get us to full health. And so some of it is the trauma stuff. And I've got people talking about somatic experiencing, the neuroaffective touch, parts work. And then I have people talking about the actual biology of the nervous system and how to increase the neuroplasticity, the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses for making energy. Why is that important? Because if that is not working well, our nervous system will not be able to shift. It feels like it does not have the resources, the the nutrients, and it will stay stuck in survival mode. And so we have to be creating the bio, the biological environment for our nervous system to feel supported and resourced and safe. And then when we do these therapies, it just accelerates the results and maximizes the results that we can get when we combine both of these approaches. So yes, they can still access those recordings and I'll give you that link so that they can look at those and see which talks that they would be most benefited from at this time. Awesome. Amy, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. Um, just, you know, you, amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Christian. Thank you for listening to Connecting Minds. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and found it interesting, illuminating, or inspiring. For episode show notes, links, and further information on our guests, please visit ChristianJordanov.com. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with someone who might also enjoy it. Thank you for being here. Thank you.